This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 25th, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. It's unthinkable to most of us that we would confess to police that we'd committed a crime when we really hadn't. But it happens a lot, and it speaks to the ways in which police investigate crimes. Marissa Boyers-Bluestein is an assistant director of the Quattrone Center for the Fair Administration of Justice at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. We talked about false confessions and how harsh and underhanded interrogation methods can damage trust between cops and communities. There is a big misconception about confessions when people confess to crimes, and that is no innocent person would ever do that. Give us a sense of of how true that statement is. Sadly, it's not true. I've seen personally myself working with people who were convicted of crimes they did not commit, the anguish that actually confessing to a crime has caused them personally. I've seen how it makes police go in the wrong direction for an investigation. Crimes don't get solved. It's a very common perception because I think most of us can't think of a set of circumstances under which we would confess to something we did not do. All right. So going through the how police get confessions or, you know, as they're they're doing investigative work, trying to uh, solve a crime or at least make or at least make an arrest in a crime. uh, What what are the technicals that police make use of in order to get to yes, so to speak, with respect to uh, somebody who's they're interrogating? Well, I'd like to say that physical abuse no longer happens. I can't. It does. It's rare. But we do know that that happens, that there are examples of police using or threatening the use of physical force to encourage somebody to speak with them. So beyond that, though, police use interrogation tactics, which are, according to social scientists, inherently coercive, that have people misunderstand the situation they're in, that have people feel they have no choice but to go along with what police are asking of them, who have that I've heard so many exonerees or people who have given confessions to crimes that did not commit say, I just wanted it to stop. And there was no other way to get it to stop other than to tell the police what they wanted to hear. But that I would say the Number one issue in the United States with police and interrogations and yielding false confessions is lying. You have to remember there's nothing unconstitutional or outside the state of Illinois uh, illegal about police lying to a suspect. They can say, we have your fingerprints, we have your DNA, we, we have all this evidence which shows you did it when in fact they do not. We got your buddy in the next room and he's rolling over on you right now. We've got you on video. We have biological evidence which proves that you were there. And that's an inherently coercive situation. I work with colleagues in the UK, in in the United Kingdom, who are police officers. And I explain this to them. And they say, look, in a much better British accent than I'm even going to attempt here, if you tell me I've got they've got my DNA, I'm going to start cooperating. These are police officers, investigators of years and years experience, they're telling me they think that's coercive. What about the guy who's coming in off the street, who's been taken away from their family, who's put in a small room, 
who is isolated away, of course they're going to think that they'd better start cooperating or it's going to get really bad really fast. We all want to live in a world uh, in which the clearance rate, that is the rate at which uh, officers make an arrest uh, in pursuit of the perpetrator of a crime and actually solving the crime have a reasonable relationship to one another. Of course. Uh, But to the extent that uh, police officers can goose their clearance rate using methods that do not help uh, solve a crime, that's a huge problem where you know, you were you were you and I were talking about Philadelphia before uh, we started recording. What has been the experience in Philadelphia? So in Philadelphia, in, say, the late 80s and 90s, when there was a crush of homicides for our department to have to deal with. It was. It was a high practice, I would say, that homicides were cleared based on inculpatory statements, confessions from individuals. The problem is that the tactics which were used to obtain those confessions may have it resulted in a higher number of false confessions than we know. Let me give a concrete example. I have a dear friend who was a police officer for 25 years, including in the narcotics unit. One of the reasons he wanted to become a volunteer lawyer with the Pennsylvania Innocence Project when he became an attorney was because as a narcotics investigator, he had several times, not once, not twice, more than that, where he had arrested somebody on a narcotics charge, was working with them, interrogating that person, gave him information about a homicide. He called down to his own homicide department to say, I've got information about this and was told... Don't worry about it. We got our guy. He confessed. That's cop to cop. And exactly what you said, if solving crime is obviously an incredibly important high priority for all of us, but if we are solving them based on inaccurate arrests, that helps no one except the person who committed the murder. And if part of that is based on evidence of confessions, and when there's very little other evidence, that's where you see these cases. That should be a flag. There are a lot of people who might maybe listening to this thinking, well, look, uh, this is it's not good that confessions given under false pretenses given when somebody didn't actually commit the crime uh, it, or that's obviously a terrible thing. But, you know, these people wouldn't be in the interrogation room if they weren't already criminals. So maybe we don't give those people as much uh, leeway as we would for good, hardworking people who scrupulously avoid negative interactions with police. Tell that to Willie Veazey. Willie Veazey was a hardworking man in North Philadelphia. He was so hardworking, he rode his bicycle to work at a restaurant in suburban Philadelphia just to work as a dishwasher because he couldn't get access to a car or public transportation. While he was working, somebody else committed a murder. He was named as the perpetrator for that, brought in by police, and wound up giving a false confession. 
and served over 28 years in prison for that. So it's a myth that a false confession or a wrongful conviction only affects somebody who, eh, maybe they did something else, or eh, maybe they weren't so great. We know that it, in fact, impacts people who shouldn't be brought into the criminal justice system at all. But of course, which is beside the fact that we don't want these horrific injustices happening on our watch at all, much less to whom they are happening. So it's just a misunderstanding or a myth that only guilty people are caught up in this. Do we have a sense of how common this is? We only have a sense of how common this is in exonerations that have actually been figured out. Right. There's no central database that is run by the government or that is 100% accurate that catches each and every time we, we convict somebody who didn't commit the crime. We have an anecdotal database, which is extraordinarily well kept through the National Registry of Exonerations. And that Registry of Exonerations has recorded, I believe, over 3,000 exonerations since that have occurred since 1989, not before that, but after. And of those approximately 20% of people who are convicted of homicide, wrongly convicted of homicide, gave confessions. So it is a an ongoing issue that we know about that has affected many, many people. Now, to be clear, many more people than that confess to crimes. And I will be the first to admit, many more people accurately confess to crimes than inaccurately. But as long as we are continuing to see a large number of people caught in that web, in that net, then we know there's an ongoing problem. And if we're not getting good information out of those interrogations and interviews, then that's a problem for all of us. Do we have any sense of uh, what police believe when they're bringing somebody in to uh, be interrogated or questioning someone about a crime that that whether they believe this is our guy, I just got to get him to slip up and then we'll then we'll know for sure that he committed this crime. Or is it something a little less honorable? I would say it's a little less happenstance. Um, so police are trained on how to interrogate by commercial establishments around the country. I myself have taken some. So I've been through them. I've been trained. I know how this goes. And generally speaking, they will develop a suspect and then bring them in to talk to them, interview them. But through the course of that first interview, which, by the way, has nothing to do with the crime, is only about trying to determine whether that person, how they're reacting to the questions and the situation they're in. If they're reacting in a way that the police officer interrogator believes is dishonest, they become a suspect and then they flip into interrogation mode. And that's and so the goal of the interrogation is to have the person admit to what they have done. And it is everything about having them admit to what they have done. So you know, the trainers will say, well, it's not about getting confession. That's not what we do. We don't interrogate innocent people because police truly believe the person they're speaking with was involved. But the weird catch-22 about it is that they are trained in these kind of human lie detector tests, which have nothing to do with accuracy, nothing to do with deception, have nothing to do with being able to accurately determine if the person sitting in front of you is or is not a truth teller. And based on that, they convince themselves to a higher degree of certainty than 
you or I would, that they're right. And based on their own subjective belief, they flip into a coercive interrogation method. So it is this very bizarre self-fulfilling prophecy that police are trained to do. And that's 100% legal, 100% constitutional, but yields false confessions at a frightening rate. Are there departments that have uh, taken this on as a, a problem and and said, well, we don't we want good information. <laughs> you know, yes. that's that's that ought to be the goal, certainly. But have there been police departments that have said, here's how we're going to go about it? And, and what does that look like? Let me start by saying outside the United States, the police departments think the way we do it here in the United States is completely backward, that by focusing on having somebody give a statement of contrition or of involvement is absolutely the wrong way, that we should be focused on investigating and finding out facts and getting information. Um, So in the UK, for example, they have done differently for over a decade. They have done it with no loss within inculpatory statements, with no loss in intelligence. In fact, they get more intelligence from their discussions and no claims of false confession. Zero. So here in the United States, yes, there are departments that want to do it differently. L.A., Tempe, Arizona, uh, Chicago is some of the departments, Seattle, Philadelphia. But the problem is a chief, I, can, I can go to a chief and I can say, look, the way you're doing it is wrong. You're getting bad information. You need to do it better. You need to be more about conversation and respecting the person's autonomy and agency. And the chief could 100% agree with me. And then the chief turns to me and says, okay, what do I do? There aren't existing solid training programs that we have to offer that alternative. California has a pending bill that would mandate it in the academy, but that's one out of 50 states and it's pending, not passed. So part of the problem is even for those who want to move away from coercive or improper interrogation methods, we don't have the infrastructure yet to be able to provide that answer for them and to work with them to change it. We're working on it, but we don't have it yet. I can imagine that in a lot of cities, in, in particular densely populated urban areas, that the relationship between the police and the policed, the communities that they're supposed to be protecting and serving, is more cosmopolitan relatively. That is, they don't necessarily know a lot of people in the neighborhood as as right. uh, in a small town you might be well acquainted with the entire police force in that kind of situation the police become a you know an, an entity unto themselves they're they're not viewed as people and no. I, I suppose the communities that force that I suppose the communities themselves are not are not by the police may not be viewed uh fully as people so trust is probably pretty difficult to come by for a lot of these uh, uh, police departments. What is the cost? How do you how do you evaluate the cost to trust uh, in an attempt to solve yet further crimes that that may be occurring? Police officers are trained coming out of the academy, by and large, as almost quasi military. We talk about police a lot as quasi military, as opposed to servants and people who are there to truly serve and protect. And civilians. And civilians. They're sworn. We refer to sworn, but they're not military. They're not soldiers. They're us. So you know, we they come out with a different mindset. But if they're going into a community and there's this otherization 
from the community police police to the community. You're exactly right. The trust is down. People don't trust the police. They don't trust that if they interact with the police and help them, good things will happen. If they think bad things will happen, they're not engaged. They're not going to come forward and give information about a crime. They're not going to come forward and give information about a perpetrator because they fear their own safety. They don't feel they'll be taken care of and they don't have that trust in the police. And a lot of that has to do with how police talk with the people they interact with on the street, people they pass. It has to do with the way police talk to victims, talk to witnesses, talk to people who have the information that police need to be able to solve the crimes. I mean, whatever forensics we have, whether it's DNA or uh, any kind of microbial biology, people are and always will be the heart of investigations. And it's their information that they have from their what they see, what they hear, what they observe, that will help to solve the crime or help to give information to police that they need. And if police are not interacting with people in a way that encourages that communication, we are losing a key element of every single police investigation. And it goes from the street all the way into the interrogation room. Marissa Boyers-Bluestein is an assistant director of the Quattrone Center for the Fair Administration of Justice at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. We spoke earlier this week. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast pretty much anywhere and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>